The sermon text today is Roman 9, verses 24 through 33. Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people, and her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts has not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. What shall we say then, that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is, a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. It's kind of amazing you can read the scripture and when you finish reading it or hearing it, you're like, what did it just say? I mean, what in the world was he just talking about? And sometimes I read it and I've read it and I've read it and I just wonder, it really just... So this text can kind of be like that. So we want to put our, keep our noses in the Bible here as we kind of walk through this thing. We're almost through chapter 9. That, that ought to give everybody a smiley face and a, a sticker of good work on this thing. We just have a little bit more to go. Now, let me just remind you where we've been. Uh, the first seven chapters in Romans, it's like a path that we're on. And, and, and Paul is leading us on this path on how is a man or a woman made right with God? How does it happen? I, I mean, how do we get reconciled to God? And this path leads us right to Romans chapter 8, which is really the treasure trove, if you will. It's the treasure of these great assurances of God's Spirit and, and these promises that nothing will separate you from the love of God. I mean, it's, it's really great, encouraging stuff, particularly in the difficulties of life, the hardships that we face, the trials that we have. To know that nothing can separate you, not even your own sin, because that's been paid for by Christ, so there's this hope that's given to us in these, in these eight chapters. And then remember in chapter 9, we made this major shift. Paul begins to just kind of emote and express his sadness over the fact that his own Jewish brothers and sisters have rejected God. They've rejected God's Messiah, and, and you know what? God's turned his back on them. God's rejected them. And, and, and Paul's raising that natural question, which is, what did God's word fail? I mean, God made all those promises throughout the Old Testament. He's going to assure them of salvation. I mean, can God be trusted? Is God faithful? And I mean, the question's good for us, too, because if God did not secure their salvation, though he said, will he secure ours? And of course, Paul then answers that in verses 6 to th the 13, no, God's word hasn't failed. The rejection of Israel doesn't display a failure in God's word uh, because he tells us the answer. He says, not all Israel belongs to Israel. In other words, in other words these, 
the Israel that God has made these promises to are not every ethnic descendant of Abraham. No, no, no. You know, God has a remnant that, that God has these children of promise, these men and women that God, for his own for his own purposes, he has sovereignly, by his mercy, elected men and women to salvation. These are the true Israel. The word of God hasn't failed them. That was the word. No, true Israel is the people that God has sovereignly chosen for his own purposes. Now, of course, the objections start flying immediately. Well, that's unfair. I mean, that can't be fair. That can't be just. I mean, God's up there electing those to whom he will redeem to himself. That, that can't be fair. And then, of course, we heard Paul's answer. It was clear. It wasn't really easy to accept, but it was clear. That God says he'll have mercy on whom he has mercy, and he'll have compassion on those whom he has compassion. Right? I mean, the argument is he is God, and he is the potter, and we're the clay, and he does have that right you know, to make out of the same lump of clay vessels for common use and vessels for honorable use. God actually has the right to make vessels of wrath and vessels of mercy. And to these Roman Christians to whom he was writing, he said, you're a vessel of mercy. He has fashioned these vessels of mercy. And that's pretty remarkable. This is what Paul begins to speak about in our passage. He's showing us how God is fashioning vessels of mercy to be a new people a people that will belong to him. Really, God's fashioning a new society. And this new people is marked by three things in our text. The first is that we're called. We've all been called. Called of God. And then secondly, and that's in 24, but then we're also designed by God. God has designed his new society to be a mixed group of people, Jews and Gentiles. And you see that in 25 all the way through 29, these different passages from Hosea and from Isaiah. And then in 30 to 33, <clears throat> the mark of God's new society is that we have faith in the Messiah. That, that we have, not faith in God, a lot of people have faith in God. We have faith in God's Messiah, the one that he sent to save. That's where our faith needs to be just locked in him as he leads us to the Father. So those are the three characteristics. So what's Paul driving to? He's driving for us to see that we're now part of a new people. And these new people are unique. We're a particular people, peculiar people. Some of us more than others, but a peculiar people that are marked by being called and marked by um, the second thing I just said, whatever that is, designed to be a mixed group. And, uh, and then the third one is to have faith in this Messiah. So let's just walk through each one. Okay, we're called people. Uh, you see that in verse 24. Look with me. In fact, look at 23 and 24. It says, In order to make the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. And this is amazing. God is preparing us for glory. This is God's move, preparing us for glory. Even us, and Paul's kind of collecting himself, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. So, so God's people, inclusion in God's society, is not driven by ethnicity, it's not driven by who you know, it's not driven by the things you've done, it's driven by, has he called you? This isn't new to our text, this isn't the first time we heard it. In chapter 1, you saw that we've been called 
to belong to Christ. And then in chapter 8, you heard that those predestined were called. Those called, he justified. Those he justified, he glorified. You see in chapter 9 and verse 11, it's not by the works that we've done, but by him who calls. That's how we know that we've been elect, by him who calls. So in other words, what's this about? Well, this idea of being called is showing us that salvation, this right relationship with God, is not rooted in anything that you are or that you could become or that you will do or that you have done. It's rooted in his call and his mercy alone. That's why he says in verse 16 of chapter 9, not by human will or exertion, but on God, of whom is all mercy. That it's the mercy of God. Now, this would not have been totally new to the Jew, perhaps, but the inclusion of the Gentiles is significant. The fact that he is calling now Gentiles and Jews to himself. Remember, the Gentiles were seen by, by many Jewish people as just simply fuel for the fire of hell. That's what they're for. You remember we read about these Gentiles in chapter 1. Let me just remind you what he says. Chapter 1, he says, They are filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, Inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. God has called them. I mean, the unfathomable. How else would they come to God? I, I mean, it took me two minutes just to read a litany of these characteristics of Gentiles. And yet God, for his sovereign purposes, calls them, calls us to himself. H have you gotten over the overwhelming idea that you've been saved by his mercy? I mean, if you, if you call Christ king and you see God as your father, are you grateful that he's called you? I mean, this idea of being called, what do I mean by this? <clears throat> well, it's God's mercy that he calls us. In other words, God calling us, it, it was that time in your life where the Spirit of God began to warm you up to the gospel. You may have heard the gospel before, but now you hear the gospel and your eyes are opened, your heart becomes warmed, grace comes into your life that you move with faith to believe. That's how God calls. That's how God calls us. It's like when I wake up in the morning, everything's quite blurry, but then I put my glasses on and things get really clear. The same things, but now I understand, I see. That's the call of God. The call of God is when he wakes you to the reality of your sinfulness and his graciousness, and you run to him just as the younger son ran to the father. Let me just be a servant in your home. I now understand. Remember how it said when he was eating with the pigs, he came to his senses. It all makes sense. That's the call of God. When the gospel makes sense and you see it as the, really the solution of your problems. I mean, it's no different than when Jesus called Lazarus out of the grave. It was the voice of Jesus calling him that gave life. He, didn't, he wasn't laying in there waiting for somebody to ask him to come out. It was the voice of Christ that was spoken and it gave life to a dead body 
that all of a sudden was reset, brought back to life and walks out to Christ. So when he calls us, the Christian, you're, you're spiritually dead. All of us, we're all born that way, dead as a doornail. And then that word of Christ comes out and life comes to us and we respond. That's why Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. Have you gotten over this? Should it not still amaze us that God would call us? You know your life. I mean, you were happy without him. You would have gone on just blindly with the rest of your life trying to make sense of the things, good and bad. And he, he called you. He saved you. It's amazing. How can any of us be arrogant or proud? Even as we grow in faith and understanding, we're still reminded we know where we've come from. We've come from deadness. And life has been given to us by God. So we're called people. We're a humble people. We're a happy people because he called us. But not just has he called us, he's also designed us. And this is really interesting when we get into 25 to 29. He's designed us to be a diverse union. He's designed us, designed us to be a diverse union. Let me explain what I mean. A, a lot of people see the call of the Gentiles as uh, God's kind of plan B, right? The Jews have rejected Jesus, and so God's going to go with the Gentiles. And he's going to ride that train out until it's finished, and then he's going to flip back to Israel. So the church is kind of seen as a parenthesis. It's, a, it's something to do. Uh, and then he'll return and save the Jewish people, ethnic Israel. Uh, it's kind of a parenthesis. It's called an interruption, if you will. Is this what Paul's saying, uh, that, that, that we are being grafted in, so to speak? I don't think he's saying that at all. I, I think he's saying something more, and I, I say that because Paul's going to the Old Testament now to justify the inclusion of the Gentiles. And what he's saying is this, is God has one plan. He's always had one plan. And the plan is to call a people to himself, to gather a people to himself. It's a word for church, this gathering together, this calling out. And, and, and he wants to form one body, one body, one body that worships him, called the church. And, and the way Paul shows this is, look with me back at 25 and 26. He's going to go to Hosea. Now, Paul's speaking to the Gentiles here. But he goes to an Old Testament text that was written to Israel. And look with me in 25 and 26. He says, uh, so he says, look at 24. Even us, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. That was the shocker to people. He's called the Gentiles into salvation. Okay, look what he says. As indeed. So he's going into giving his proof for the Gentiles being called. He says, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in every place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. Now, in this, we studied Hosea last summer. I'm sure you remember. And in Hosea, um, God is dealing with the northern tribes of Israel, the ten northern tribes, and they have apostatized. They have rejected God. They've turned away from him again and again and again. And God finally says, enough. He says, enough. And he's going to bring judgment upon them by the nation of Assyria. Assyria was a mighty nation. They would come in and conquer. And they would haul the people back. 
They would take and they would transplant the people. That's how they dominated nations. And so he says, judgment's going to come upon you for your disbelief and for your unbelief. In fact, these Israelites were really living like Gentiles. They were acting like Gentiles. And so he says to them, you're, you're not going to be my people. You're not going to be my people. You're not going to be beloved. You're not going to be sons of the living God. That was a word of judgment. But in Hosea, there's a word of hope. God says that my mercy will be renewed. That those who were not my people will be my people. And those who are not my beloved will be. And those who are not my sons will be my sons. Now what you see happening here is Paul is taking this and he's applying it to the Gentiles. He's saying that the Gentiles were not my people, but now they are. He's taking in a text for Israel, and he's applying it to the Gentiles. He's saying that, no, 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 now it, there's going to be a new people. You're going to be part of my people, the very people that I've created for myself. It's not two tracks. There's not the Jewish track and then the Gentile track. There's this track, God's fashioning a new people for himself. Now, we saw just glimpses of this with, you have the story of Rahab, who comes to faith. You have the story of Ruth. You have, of course, the Ninevites to whom Jonah preached. You know, these were, these were drawn in. But, but this is a new work he's doing, no longer driven by ethnicity. And this is what Paul's saying. Now, he doesn't just say it in Romans. He says this in Ephesians. Let me read to you from Ephesians 2. In Ephesians 2, he says, to the Gentiles, he says, remember that at that time you were separated from Christ. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. You were strangers to the covenants of promise. You had no hope. You were without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He himself is our peace. Now listen to this. He says, he has made us both one and broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law and the commandments expressed in the ordinance, ordinances. The dividing wall between Jew and Gentile has been broken down. That he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, thus making peace that he might reconcile us to God in one body through the Christ. So God is doing a work here. This, when Paul says, even us whom he've called, both from the Jews, but also from the, even us, we're now one new man. Peter says the same thing. Peter, in the uh, second chapter of his first letter, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you have not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. So the call of God in mercy has fashioned the two into one. So he's saying there's no longer this Jewish line and Gentile line. They're now God's people line, God's society. Let me quote you one scholar who says, the Old Testament prophetic promise of Israel regathering in covenant faith to Yahweh is being progressively fulfilled in the salvation of believing Jews and Gentiles in this present age, that is, in the church. The calling out of Gentiles from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation is the prophesied restoration of Israel. For the church is the continuation and the maturation of Israel's believing remnant. So what he's saying is this that Israel's believing remnant, you remember now, not all Israel was Israel, that believing remnant has now morphed and bloomed into the church. The church is now the one people of God. It's not Jew and Gentile coming together but keeping their ethnic distinctions. No, they're one. They're now called of God by grace. It's a diverse union now. 
It's like a marriage becoming one, different people becoming one. You, you see the same thing. Now look in 27 to 29, because he says, here the inclusion of the Gentiles is being prophesied in the Old Testament, and also the inclusion of Israel is being spoken of, but only a remnant. Now these are hard words to understand. That's why Romans 9 is such a difficult passage. Look with me in 27 to 29. I want you to see it in the text. He says, Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant will be saved. He says, for the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. God is bringing judgment to Israel for their rejection. God's bringing judgment. And he's saying this, that, that you will be destroyed by Babylon. This is the southern kingdom that he's speaking to but a remnant will be saved. So in the message of judgment, there is a message of hope. But look what he says. If the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we saw that back earlier in chapter 9, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. In other words, if God's mercy hadn't have saved some, God was going to wipe out all of Israel. None of Israel would have seen the face of God in glory. But what he's saying is, is God, all Israel has never been Israel. God has always had a select, sovereign few of Israel. That's called the, the theology of the remnant. There's always been a part that's saved. That's what he's saying here. This new, God's new society is made up of Gentiles and this remnant of Israel. God is striving to have a diverse union. Uh, we need, as a church, by the way, to have the same diversity among us. He wants a people different, and yet, similar gathered around the gospel so we see that we've been called and we've been designed that god has brought about this purposes of both jew and gentile into one new person destroying our ethnic distinctions not eliminating them as if they're bad but just finding our union in christ to be of greater value holding us together even though we have differences among us okay the third thing we see in this text is that we have faith in the Messiah. Look in 30 to 33 with me. You see this, and I'm only going to touch on that this morning, and I'll speak to this more next week. But he says, What shall we say then? Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching the law. So he shows us here that the people of God, this new society, is marked by common faith in the Messiah. So we Gentiles did not pursue it. We were godless, we were malicious, we were pursuing our own ways. We didn't pursue it, but God sovereignly opened our eyes to the glory by his own mercy, and we've now attained it because we've attained it by faith in Christ. That's the distinguishing mark. Now, I want you to notice in verse 30 here, Paul's shifting to begin to talk about human responsibility. In chapter 9, 1 to 29, it's all about God, God, God. God sovereignly, God's driving this train. But boy, 930 hits, and he says, what shall we say? And he speaks to our responsibility to respond to the gospel. And so what binds us together, what marks the people of God, is that we have a faith in Jesus Christ who has become for us righteousness. So we have attained a righteousness. Remember how the first seven chapters, how does man, how does woman get right with God? It's through Christ. He is our righteousness. 
So God is forming a new society. These vessels of mercy, they're drawn from Gentile, they're drawn from Jew, they're joined together. It's God's new society. We're a called people. We're a diverse people designed by God. And we're a people marked by faith in the Messiah. So what do we do with this? I, I know that's, <clears throat> that's maybe more theology that you want, but what do we do with this? Well, we as a new society, we ought to rejoice that God exalts the humble. Listen, God, by his own purposes and glory, calls us by grace. And none of us deserve to be saved. I mean, the broken among us, the sinful, those who feel forsaken and forlorn, rejoice that it is not in you that makes you savable or worthy for salvation. It's not in you. It's in him. He has, he has purposed to draw from the humble and the broken and the sinful and the constant failures. He's drawn from you to himself. I mean, it's remarkable that nobody in here can be so despairing of themselves that you cannot be chosen by God. That there's no one here that is outside the reach of God. That even if you're here and, and, and you're just looking into the faith, but, but you wonder, can God ever really accept me? Well, God's choice and God's mercy was evidenced before the foundation of the world, before you'd done anything good or bad. So there's nothing that you have presently done or might do that would somehow draw you out of God's mercy. That doesn't, again, give license or entitlement. It just reminds you that God's mercy is far more fathomable than our sin. But, but you know, the, the opposite is true as well, that God may, may exalt the humble, but he will, he will humble the exalted. I mean, the one thing that his mercy proves is that your righteousness has not put you in a position with God that the sins of others have kept them from. Uh, let me warn you, I mean, being raised in a Christian home with Christian principles, even if you like the Christian culture, you know, that does not put you closer to God. In fact, I would say that a sense of entitlement or even proximity is, can be very damning. You know, Jesus said to the religious leaders, you know, the guys in white hats, the ones that we'd all think, wow, they must really know God. He says tax collectors and prostitutes are getting into the kingdom ahead of you. Can you imagine what that would have felt like? That would have stung to think that here I am. I've worked so hard at my righteousness, and a prostitute is going to get into the kingdom before me? God, God's going to crush our religious systems, and he's going to crush the way that we come up with well, what makes God happy and what keeps a person from God? It's God's sovereign mercy alone. You know, Carol will tell you this, and I asked if I could share it, and she said, I could. You know, Carol was raised in a home, and uh, much of the home was wrapped in a degree of ungodliness, alcohol, drugs, family, extended family. And Carol was just like, I mean, she was a bright light in a very dark place. And uh, she was raised in the Christian faith, somewhat she was coming to a deeper understanding of it but she was in the faith for a number of years before she realized that that her confidence was got with god was rooted in how different she was than from all the other darkness around her she saw herself with god because of her life <clears throat> not what christ has done it was a couple of years into our marriage when she had to repent of her religion she had to repent of her self-righteousness. She had to repent of feeling like, 
I'm special because look at my life in comparison to other people. She was trusting in herself. Now, it was mingled in there. She had faith in Jesus as well, but it's the mercy of God, by the way. You know, our, our conversions are just kind of a rolling thing sometimes. You know, we just, it works itself out by his grace. But, but, but that's something to be mindful of. You know, J.C. Ryle, a preacher in the 19th century, he said these words. He said, one thief was saved. That is, the two thieves next to Jesus dying. One thief was saved that no sinner might despair but only one that no one would presume. So we want to make sure, that we, do we understand that God loves a contrite and broken spirit? And, and then secondly, I would say from this text, we can pick up the fact that we can rest in his word. His word is trustworthy. Do you realize, you know, the Old Testament, I know is kind of, sometimes it's difficult to understand. Many of us, though, just write it off. It's archaic, it doesn't really apply. No, it really does. You see that the promises that Paul is quoting they actually are fashioning history. So God's word didn't fail. God's word fashioned history. It, history is coming to be in light of what was said in the Old Testament. Do you see that? But not only that, if you're a Christian here and you love the promises in the Old Testament, the only reason you can cling to those promises is because you're now new Israel. You're now, you're now part of God's new society. You're a continuation of the remnant. You can't claim these promises given to Israel unless you're part of God's people that he designed. Kind of that new society now, the new Israel, the spiritual Israel. That's why we can look at Psalm 23 and rest. Or look at Psalm. He's the keeper of Israel in Psalm 121. Well, we're now true Israel. We're, so the promises in the Old Testament are ours because he's drawn us in. But not only that, but you can also be comforted by this adoptional language. Listen, you were not a people, now you are. You, you were not beloved, and now you're beloved. You were not sons of the living God, now you are sons of the living God. Does that comfort you to hear that language? I mean, many of us, so we always feel kind of left alone because we're not included in whatever group we want to be in. And yet God is including you in his family. Does that, does that give you a passion? I mean, to the degree that you find joy in being included, should give you a marker of how much you're really drawing from and enjoying the gospel. You know, Soren Kierkegaard was a Danish philosopher, kind of the father of existentialism. Existentialism is a philosophy of kind of looking at life through your experiences. And he chided the, the Danish pastors at the time because he said they had no passion. They had no passion. They had no excitement for God. He says that you're preaching a unique message, the gospel, a transformative message, and yet you have no passion. Maybe flashes of enthusiasm, he says, but no passion. What is our level of affection for God? And if it is on the low ebb, then think upon who you once were and the mercy given to you. I mean, do you understand that you really were once not a people, but now you're his people? You really once... We're not loved, but now you're beloved. You once were not sons and daughters. Now you're sons and daughters of a living God. Interesting, a living God. Not some archaic understanding, a philosophical, a, um, philosophical God, a living God you are sons and daughters of. And, and then I would say this too, that, that 
another truth we draw on this, that we're reminded that God has no ethnic leanings. The church, the church always rejects racism. There are no ethnic primaries in our world. That, that when you've been called by God's mercy, uh, not in anything you've done, it shows us that God does not have one race over another race. Uh, it's not Jews and Gentiles. It's not in the sense of, okay, the Gentiles are now becoming Jews or the Jews becoming Gentiles. Uh, there's this new society called the church where these ethnicities kind of fade into the background. There is one new man that he has created. Uh, races now do not play a role in our understanding of how God works in the world. Now, there is an evangelical fascination. I used to have it with Israel becoming a state in 1948. And, and I used to hear all the time how God has gathered together the people of Israel to do his end time work through the nation of Israel. Is that true? Now, after what I've just said, is that true? When I've just said that, that the two have become one and there's a new society. It's no longer known by Jew or Gentile, but we are known by Christ, that we are fashioned into one new body. If this is true, why would he go back and do a work with an ethnic group when he's already moved from ethnicities? You know, once the substance comes, the shadow fades. That's why we don't sacrifice lambs anymore. Lambs were a foreshadowing of a perfect land to come. And once the perfect lamb came and did the work that the lamb was, was designed to do, we don't go back to sacrificing lambs. Now, what is the future of Israel? Well, we're going to find out in chapter 11, at least. But we don't know, and I'm not going to speculate right now. Remember, all through chapters 9, 10, and 11, you're going to find that Israel, the term Israel, has to be, has to be measured rightly. Because sometimes it's talking about spiritual Israel, sometimes it's talking about ethnic Israel. So I would just remind you that we're not pro-Israel or pro-Palestine. We're pro-the-nations. We want the nations to know Christ. We want justice and mercy to be toward all, not putting one above the other. And then last, I would say this, that this text encourages us in global missions. Listen, if God is drawing people from every tribe, tongue, and nation by his own sovereign purposes, that's the impetus for why we do missions, not just global missions, but also local missions. You know, Paul's letter, he's writing to a church in Rome made up of both Jews and Gentiles. So he's trying to help them understand each other. And remember, he had never met them. He, had, he was writing to them because he was going to go there. He was going to introduce himself. This is kind of an introduction letter. And he wants their support to go to Spain. You see that in chapter 15. He says, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I've enjoyed your company for a while. So Paul's intention is, I'm going to Spain, I want you to help me, Roman Christians. And so what Paul is doing is he's showing us a theology of mission. He's giving us an understanding of how do we see how God is fashioning his people, how God's going into the world. And that's what 9, 10, and 11 are about. This is how God, now the strategy of missions will come in chapter 10, but the theology of mission is in 9. That God is sovereignly electing people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And nations don't, there aren't some nations that are more important to God than others. 
that he's selecting people from all peoples, as Ray prayed, even the Moors from Mauritania. There will be people there at the throne because God has sovereignly chosen them. And Paul's telling him, this is why we engage in missions, because God knows them. And we're the ones to go preach the gospel to them. That's chapter 10, verse 14. We're the ones to go preach the gospel to them that they might come and believe. So this idea of we're a new society, we're called, we're designed to be a diverse union, one body now, and we're called to believe in Jesus as the Son and to go forth and tell others about him. So, so your understanding of the gospel, how you respond to this gospel really puts you in position, or really it shows you what your standing is before God is what it does. So, so this is an important passage. It's mired with some theology and trying to understand Israel and, and Gentiles, no doubt. But at the end of the day, it's encouragement to us that we've been called of God. We're his new society. We have become a diverse union. We are together now. Our ethnicities are second to our faith. And we have um, been given this Christ who is our righteousness. So let me pray for us and then we'll... Prepare for the table.